The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we thank you that by design you've called your church to assemble. That's what we are. We're a, a gathering of those who have submitted in faith and repentance, specifically faith in the resurrected Savior. And so we, we thank you that that is our common bond and creed and joy, and that we we have a blessed hope in which we anticipate and uh, long for the day in which you will return and call your church to yourself, and we will uh, also um, be fit and transformed and, and uh, have our own resurrection bodies uh, to enjoy your presence forever, not simply so that we can enjoy things, but that we might be worshipers in, a, in the purest and most uh, perfect expressions thereof. Lord, we think about this, uh, the church and what was Swaziland and the, um, the testimony that's gone out from them is, is not as reputable as we would desire. We, we think about how often in the letters that Paul would write of uh, the reputation of various churches and um, often it was encouragement and sometimes it, it produced the need for correction. And, and we think about the testimony that was spoken in 1 Corinthians 15 as, as we read a portion of this morning, but uh, just to, to draw on the fact that if uh, Christ wasn't risen, then we're of all men to be um, uh, ashamed and, and feel foolish for the, the giving of our lives to, to a righteous and faithful path, to putting our hope in something of such a nature. And that hope is, is a transformative hope. And so we pray that that would uh, be the testimony of, of your church throughout the world. And to include here, we're, we're not beyond drifting. Uh, we're not beyond um, growing proud or weak or even carnal if we don't watch ourselves, if we don't um, intentionally walk in holiness and, and speak truth to one another and exhort and rebuke and encourage and so, Lord, we pray that you would preserve the testimony of your church uh, for your namesake and that we would live in view of your resurrection and with that, your return. We recognize that you've ascended to the Father's right hand, that you are uh, seated at the Father's right hand now, and we, we long for your return. And may we live expectantly and accordingly. And, Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, continue in, in these days to to strengthen us also in just the, the daily walk of life as worshipers. Uh, to that end, would you be pleased to, to help us as we turn to the scriptures? Um, this is the a common means of grace that you've provided for your church by which we can know and grow and be transformed and know you better and learn how to walk well and how to think and operate in a way that pleases you and that reflects your glory. And so may we um, come to the scriptures now in a way that uh, is, is humble, to, to recognize that it's not a measure of work or time or attention or skill, but a submission to your spirit that uh, will produce fruit in this engagement. And so please be my help, and please be the help of all your people. And Lord, have mercy on those who aren't yours. Think about uh, our little ones and potentially others that are outside of Christ and that are in need of of the things for which we both take for granted and rejoice in. May you open their eyes and may you have mercy upon them as well that uh, they would join us in the company of worshipers. Again, be our help. Uh, make much of your name in this opportunity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So for the, the last several weeks, uh, we've been laboring through the book of Jude. So if I occasionally slide in a reference to Jude, it's because it's familiar territory. I've, I've loved and enjoyed that book. I, I was sharing with Denise this morning the original plan, um, which is, uh, I, don't ever ask me to plan things for you. My original plan was that we would finish Jude probably around the end of March, maybe beginning of April. And that was pretty clearly shaping up to not be the case. And so I thought, you know what? It, it looks like potentially we'll land on Easter with a doxology. What a great place to land. And so we'll just finish out Jude on Easter. But uh, we're right in the middle of the book at this point in time. So we're going to pause. But uh, it has been our journey. It has been our work. And so with that, be, that being uh, in view, as we've labored through the book of Jude and um, this, in that process, we established, and we've plainly observed that, that Peter's voice is clearly heard echoing throughout that letter. And so if you walked with us through First Peter or Second Peter coming into Jude, or even if you're just a student in the scriptures and you're familiar with First Peter and Second Peter, you start thinking, well, this sounds a lot like that guy. And we, we've walked through that. And there's times that Jude even effectively quotes Peter or takes what he says and applies it to the dynamics of the situation as they've now developed. That's certainly where we are in the book of Jude. And that the very middle of the book, it sounds very uh, Peter-like, as it were. And we established that there's good reason for this. Uh, Peter wrote that threats to Christ's church were coming, and Jude went on to, to later write that they have come. Peter forecasted the need to contend, and when this time came, Jude reached back to Peter and drew from him generously. Well, this morning, as we observe a similar engagement by Peter, as he's going to do some reaching back, not by way of a few years, uh, we don't really know exactly the gap between 2 Peter and Jude. It was probably a very close time. It wasn't a lot of time that, uh, that went by. And so, Jude, or, so Peter's going to actually reach back much further than Jude did. Uh, not by a few years or even decades, but hundreds of years back to a psalm of David in which David prophetically expressed what Peter had come to see and in such knew to be true, namely the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So once more, this morning, we will observe that in Peter's desire to clearly express how to understand the momentous um, matter of Christ's resurrection from the dead, he did very, uh, something very similar to what we saw in Jude. He reaches back. He looks back and says, where can I draw from truth to, to make sense of, to understand, articulate this matter? And he does that by looking to David's words, which first explain this moment so clearly that Yahweh would not forsake Messiah's soul to the grave or have his body see corruption therein, which is why the crucified and buried Jesus Christ has now also become the resurrected Jesus Christ whom Peter was preaching. The same risen Christ who went on to engage his own half-brothers to include James and Jude transforming them from hostile unbelievers in the gospel context where they're rejecting their brother or their half-brother and the identity of him as Messiah, transforming them as they meet and engage the resurrected Savior from unbelievers to now slaves, not of their brother, but of the Lord's Christ. So as we begin this morning and as we reasonably give special attention to this cornerstone of our faith, the resurrection of the crucified and buried Jesus Christ, let's first read from Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where he draws from David's prophetic words of Christ's resurrection. So Acts chapter 2, we're going to just read verses 22 through 36. Peter, or We're going to pick up with Peter stating, quote, Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to see corruption." You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Men, brothers, I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruits of his body on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, as many of you recognize, Peter cited two Psalms of David in this section here, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, both of which give us an invaluable insight into the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 16 giving direct treatment to the resurrection itself, and Psalm 110 the exaltation that followed the resurrection and ultimately Christ's ascension to the Father's right hand. Now, we actually gave special attention to Psalm 110 last year on Easter or Resurrection Sunday, and now today our attention will be on Psalm 16, from which Peter cited a most extraordinary portion. And we will engage not only the selection of verses that Peter cited from, but the psalm as a whole, so as to provide the context for that which is being established as to be a, a prophetic statement, but also because I'm increasingly persuaded that the psalm as a whole, and not just this section, may be contributing to the Old Testament's larger development of the theology of the resurrection, a theology that was plainly in place for hundreds if not thousands of years, albeit not as refined and clear as it would ultimately come to be through the fuller revelation provided in the New Testament, particularly through the Apostle Paul. Still, even if it's uh, even in its earlier developments as a doctrine, it was quite a, a theological wedge between major uh, Jewish groups of the first century. So, as you recall in Matthew chapter twenty-two, um, we see an incident that that highlights that, and the ones that specifically rejected it, namely the Sadducees, they received a poignant rebuke from Jesus on this matter, as he stated to them that they neither understood the scriptures nor the power of God. So while the scribes and Pharisees received some of the severe rebukes of Jesus, especially as we see them cataloged in uh, Matthew chapter 23, here we see such a, a weighty, one-time, heavy rebuke. You neither understand the scriptures or the power of God. And this rebuke quite, uh, is quite unique and stands out and demonstrates the weightiness of this doctrine of the resurrection. And we have to think where we are in redemptive history when the rebuke was delivered, it's communicating that the doctrine of the resurrection was sufficiently clear even from the Old Testament scriptures. 
So recognizing that Peter draws from Psalm 16 to communicate Christ's resurrection and that the foundations of this doctrine were clearly established in the Old Testament scriptures, let's give a measure of time and attention to the psalm in context and then further consider its larger role in this uh, tapestry of resurrection truths. And before we read this psalm together, I'd like to provide my outline, as it were, just to help frame our engagement of the text and uh, to help us as we begin to read it as well. So Psalm 16, first we have a header or introduction. Uh, It's common for the psalms. It gives us a little bit of information in terms of maybe historical context, maybe liturgical information or musical information, maybe authorship. Here we have it's a, a mictum of David. And then verses 1 and 2, we have David's request and self-identification. And we could further break that down to a preserving refuge and no independent good. In verses 3 to 4, we have a contrast of saints and idolaters, which we again could further break down to delighting in the faithful and opposing the wicked. And then verses 5 to 8, David's satisfaction and security. And we break that down with Yahweh's care and through provision and Yahweh's care through proximity. And then verses 9 through 11, Yahweh's worshipful provisions, uh, further broken down with Yahweh's provision through temporal death and Yahweh's provision through eternal life. So with that being in view, let's read and give our attention to Psalm 16 now. It begins, a mictum of David. Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord, I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. And your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Now, as we stated, Psalm 16 begins with the header, a mictum of David. So first and most plainly, we recognize the psalm is a psalm of David. And this conclusion is validated by Peter, as we saw in Acts chapter 2. So a lot of times people will question... Are the headers authoritative, and and do they give us good information? I am persuaded. I would see that as part of the psalm, but when we have the New Testament reference that affirms that, that gives us a sure, clear authorship. So we know it's a psalm of David, again, as validated by Peter. But the other element provided for us here, namely that it's a mictum, that's not quite as plain. And now, not unlike some of the other terms that are found in the headings of various psalms, we don't have a firm conclusion on its meaning. Sometimes we have liturgical terms or musical terms, and we're not fully sure uh, how that would be practiced or what it might be expressing. Sometimes it's very obvious, and sometimes it's even just quite clear. Other times we don't know. We don't use that term. That term didn't carry on in a way that uh, maintained an identity that we can immediately uh, have clear to us. Probably in time, maybe in time, uh, scholarship will find something that will make that clear. But for now, we're not completely certain of its meaning. However, we can observe of its uh, 
uh, that it's a description or title in the header of five other psalms. And so uh, we see this list here. It's five other psalms, all psalms of David. They're clustered together, 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60. And, and so with that, maybe we can make some observations. Why does he use that term mictum, a psalm of David, a mictum of David? And so with that, we just make the following observations. Very broad, very general, but Psalm 56 uh, we noticed that when David was seized by the Philistines in Gath, a dramatic incident there. Uh, 57, when David was fleeing from Saul, another very dry, uh, dynamic and dry, dramatic incident. Psalm 58, a, a precatory psalm of David. And then 59, when Saul was attempting to kill David. And then Psalm 60, when David and Israel suffered a substantial military setback. So, Potentially some thematic development there, but we need to be careful that we don't make deductions too quickly. But based off of my, again, broad descriptions of these other Psalms of David that share this identification, it might be a reasonable deduction to conclude that the term expresses that the Psalm would be one of struggle or lament or a mixture thereof. I think that's a reasonable conclusion, but I recognize that covers a lot of Psalms that are not victims of David. And so I have to concur with the observations expressed in uh, the um, KND's Psalms commentary when they state, but there's no trace of anything like bitter complaint, gloomy conflict, or hard struggle. The cry for help is immediately swallowed up by an overpowering and blessed consciousness and, br- and a bright hope. There reigns in the whole psalm a settled calm, an inward joy, and a joyous confidence, which is certain that everything that it can desire that it can desire for the present and for the future it possesses in God. And so, I again, I think they made a really good observation for Psalm 16, and so that kind of bumps us out of the category of lament and struggle and hardship because all those, as the commentators stated here, were effectively swallowed up, and so we're left with not necessarily knowing what the mictum element is. So while the proper identification of the term, it's going to continue to elude us perhaps today and perhaps tomorrow, and it has for many Bible students and teachers and commentators alike, it does provide us an opportunity to highlight something though, that the tone of this psalm expresses a clear and confident trajectory, that it's different in a lot of ways from those others where we say, oh, it's got to be one of struggle because struggle is effectively done away with. It doesn't, it doesn't have a heavy presence. It's present, and then it becomes less and less, and then altogether diminished by the time you get to the end of the psalm. So I would argue that it finds its uh, pinnacle sourcing of, of worshipful joy and confidence and centering on the hope of the resurrection. And with that, again, just diminishes the place of any struggle. So this and that being expressed most plainly in verse 10, as we'll see. But we still don't need to gloss over the fact that there's also language of struggle. So even though I'm going to concede that it's, it's done away with and overwhelmed, there is still some language of struggle there and some opposition throughout the psalm. So we do need to wrestle through that as well. And as we'll soon see, the opening and exclusive petition, the, the prayer in the psalm, is that he would be what? He'd be kept. Lord, keep me. And that's not an artificial request. It's not a, oh, it's prayer time. I need to think of something to say. Lord, keep me. That's a good prayer. It is a good prayer, but it was sincere and it was cried out by one who knows what it was like to be kept. So for some reason or another, David petitions that God, here translated from El or the powerful and magnificent God, would keep him. And bundled into this request is the affirmation of David also having taken refuge in God. So again, Lord, would you keep me? You've been my refuge. 
Lord, keep me. There are also persons that David will go on to identify as, as bad company, those with whom he has disassociated himself. And then finally, there's another enemy that David speaks to here, namely death and the corruption that accompanies it. And so there is struggle all the way through. It just gets resolved. That's all. So while worshipful confidence in God both now and through eternity is the sweeping thrust of the psalm, there's still the presence of opposition and or struggle in the present as well. Okay, now that we've considered the psalm's header, let's begin working through its respective sections, beginning with David's request and self-identification as established in verses 1 and 2. Now, as we've already established, here we have David's only petition, his only prayer in the psalm, namely, again, to be kept, to be guarded, to be preserved. But for what reason is David requesting God to preserve him? Well, we don't know, but we do know that when he was in need of preservation, in need of safekeeping, in need of help, David looked to God. And I know that sounds, well, that sounds really overly simplistic, but you put yourself in the middle of struggle and you find out where's your dependence, where's your help. And so we know what David did. He looked to God, not, not first or primarily to friends, and, and the Lord's graced us with, with company and fellowship and friends, but that wasn't the first place he looked. He didn't look to the militaries or arsenals, but to God. And this was a reasonable request to the Lord who, as we've affirmed ourselves in our early work in Jude, is a God who keeps, right? We've rejoiced in that. We labored in Jude. And one of the very first things we do is that he keeps us. He's a God who keeps us. He keeps and preserves and guards his own. Therefore, David is beseeching him who is not only able but who has shown himself faithful time and time again. You know, David's resume of being kept is magnificent. Probably not one that we would prefer but over and over again, he could say, the Lord's kept me. He's been faithful. Because David, like few others, knew God was a sure refuge, and therefore it was the most natural thing to have confidence in his petition to be kept. Now, just a small sidebar here. Um, I would remind you that in our engagement with the Psalms on Wednesday nights, so Wednesday nights we usually work through the Psalm that we're going to read on Sunday morning, um, is our common practice. Well, and as we do that, it's also a common pattern to, to look at how the, the psalmist prays. How do they pray? How do they petition God? How do they, how do they cry out to God? How do they speak to their Lord? And we would do well to remember that how David prays here was intimately informed by that painful resume, that painful resume of suffering and struggle, but one that consistently demonstrated a simple truth every single time, namely that God keeps those who take refuge in him. So while it may not be the, the resume of our choosing, namely one of sorrows, sufferings, and struggles, if they are accompanied by patterns of entrusting ourselves to God's keeping us as we find refuge in him, then it will prove to be a resume that transforms us to be a bit more like David, who is a joyfully confident worshiper. So again, whatever the circumstances, you know, we can, it's easy to express, well, all things work out for good. Well, Thanks be to God, that's an easy thing to say because it's also true. But what's it accomplishing? It's showing time and time again that he keeps, that he's faithful. He's a good and faithful refuge. And it provokes us to learn to pray, again, much like David, who I would argue is a quintessential worshiper. Now, coming back to Psalm 16. Back to this opening petition here. Um, we observe that David went on to express an element of, of self-identification uh, regarding his own goodness, being exclusively rooted and sourced in Yahweh his Lord. 
Now, as we consider this, uh, let's take another peek back to Jude. So I mentioned we're going to, we're familiar with Jude. He's a dear friend of ours. We're just borrowing some time away from him. So we're going to take a peek back to Jude where we've affirmed that the identity of a genuine believer in Christ is one who is submitted to Christ's lordship, a matter that's emphatically expressed by the contrast of the clandestine offenders who are described as doing what? Denying our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now consider how this like manner is being expressed by David, who at this time was the chief sovereign of Israel, and as such was stating that though he was the anointed king, he recognized that he was subservient to the anointing king. David was affirming that he too was holy under the lordship, the authoritative direction and desire, and in submission to the will of Yahweh. He would join the company of Jude as he saw the resurrected Savior and says, I'm a slave of Christ. He's, a, he's under the lordship of Yahweh. Nothing has changed in regard to these patterns, again, of submission and obedience, demonstrating that we not only would do well to petition the Lord like David, to cry out to him, Lord, keep me, you're my refuge, but also to express our identities, again, as ones in being joyful submission to our Lord. Again, that's the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. Those who beheld the resurrected Savior, the identity they assume may or may not be apostle, may or may not be a leader in the church, but they were slaves and servants under the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we continue on here, we then recognize that David goes on to express that Yahweh, his Lord, was the root and source of any goodness that he possessed or experienced. And while not groveling about how he was a worthless worm of a man, David was nevertheless affirming that any goodness that he possessed or experienced was holy independence and an association with Yahweh and his goodness. Therefore, neither his petition nor the blessings that he goes on to rejoice in throughout the psalm were because he saw them as self-merited, as it were, but rather generously provided by the giver of all good things. Now, as you well know, we place a, a value on considering the structure and development of a given passage. That's why we started off with an outline, right? We, we see there's, a, there's an intentionality to the writing. And sometimes it, if you just ask somebody to speak on a subject, they might ramble and rant. But if you give them intentional time to craft an argument, usually they're going to have some form of structure. And we, we look for that. And we, we see the, the structure and grammar and words. All these things matter as we study the scriptures. And so we want to look at the development of a given passage and I'm increasingly, having labored in Psalm 16 and days bygone, and certainly in our engagement and preparation for this, I'm convinced that these two elements in verses 1 and 2, David's petition to be kept and the blessings that he draws from his submission to Yahweh, that's going to go on to serve as a foundation for this psalm. Because we're going to see these, as these elements inform his relationships with others, as expressed in verses 3 and 4. Why does he delight in certain people and have nothing to do with others? It's going to inform how he evaluated the Lord's provisions by way of his inheritance as expressed in verses 5 and 6. How did he evaluate what he's been provided and experienced? And in a fitting climax, they inform the confident joy he experienced in the Lord's care for him in life and in death as expressed again in verses 7 through 11. So with this foundation in place, let's consider how David contrasted relationships between those who were also submitting to the Lordship of Yahweh and those who chose a path of idolatrous sorrows. So we see in verses 3 and 4 that David first identifies the favorable, even beloved company as the saints or, or the holy ones, an identity that carries over to the New Testament believer as well. So when we see the imploring of the title saints, 
And it's not necessarily something we greet one another with now. We, we don't say, I really enjoyed my time with the Saints of Grace Bible Church. That's not a bad title. That's not even a bad way to refer to each other. Because the saints in the New Testament are joining in David's company and identifying God's people as the holy ones. The holy ones, as such is what God has called his people to be, to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. And remember, that wasn't just Leviticus, 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe. It's emphatically commanded yet again, to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. That's who the saints are. David then further describes them as the saints who are in the earth, or more precisely, the land of Israel. And so you see that term for earth, it can be land, and usually when land is identified with a specific region, that's how we're going to identify the earth in that regard. So it's the land of Israel, land over which David was the temporal steward as their anointed, not elected, but anointed king. Therefore, these holy ones were a people of covenant promise occupying the covenant promised land. And these people were not described as the holy ones in whom David takes such great delight simply because of their birthright. Oh, well, they're Israelites within the land, and so they're the holy ones. Or because of the occupation of the land, but because of their walking in covenant faithfulness. That's what made them the holy ones. They submitted in faith and repentance and were walking in joyful obedience. Therefore, they were holy as the Lord their God was holy, and they were holy to the Lord, for the Lord, by the Lord. That's a saint. And that's who David was delighting in. It was these people whom David highly esteemed as the majestic ones, the glorious ones. Not to be confused with the glorious ones of 2 Peter or Jude. These are the majestic ones, the holy ones of Israel, the faithful believers, and for whom he had set his full affection. David adored this company, the, the faithful covenant people of God, and he loved the source of their excellence, namely Yahweh, his Lord, and theirs. Which brings us to another most clear transferable principle for us here as well, that to love the Lord is to do what for his people? It's to love his people, right? That's an identity of, of who we are as being a people in Christ, that we love one another. It's a litmus test even for that matter. And so David loved the people who walked in holiness and joyful obedience. Now, as much as as much attention as David gave the faithful people of God, expressing his great affection for them, he also gave almost really almost double in terms of the, the, the real estate of, of letters and words here, double attention to express his opposition to the idolaters whom he vehemently opposed. So by way of contrast, David had no such esteem, affection, or association with those who not only failed to recognize Yahweh's lordship, but who were stated to have ba um, bartered for another god. Now, while there are differing conclusions, and maybe even in your translations in terms of uh, how this term bartered should be communicated, some translating it as, as run after, they run after other gods, or, or they desire other gods, it appears most plainly to be, uh, I think bartered is a good term, it, it communicates a dowry or a bride price, a payment, a situation in which there would be an initial investment that expresses the, curing, uh, the, the, the securing of something of precious value. So with this in view, you can see a plain contrast between this company and the holy ones in whom David had expressed great delight. This company consisted of those who had made an investment and that which would only bring a multiplication of pain. Multiplication of pain is actually very, very similar language to another reference in Genesis chapter 3, the multiplication of pain and childbirth, obviously a different context, but you can understand and appreciate that, that pain upon pain that they've increased upon themselves, a pain not unlike uh, a pain not like the nature of the righteous. The pain of the righteous is a, a refining pain. That's the pain that presses you to take refuge in the Lord. But this is a pain that consisted only of loss, of suffering, 
and of great distress. And the longer you've walked with the Lord and the longer you've just observed people, you've seen this. You've seen people that have chosen this path. Their sorrows just stack upon sorrows and their pain increases upon pain. Coming to a a light conclusion regarding this matter too, as far as these godless ones who have, have bartered for another god, um, with a, a bride price, as it were, a down payment, John Calvin made the astute observation that in the context of idolatry, the full benefit of the gift is lost, and what is gained is the wrath of the one true God, and thereby their sorrows. Now, these idolaters only have um, one offense identified in the psalm. It's a descriptive offense. It's not the only one. It's one that uh, expresses the, the, the form of their idolatry, one that was associated with the polluting of drink offerings. But it appears to have been a rather a vulgar offense, as it were, as it's a defilement or mockery of the, the larger sacrificial system that the Lord established for his people. Because while not as prominent as other elements of the sacrificial worship system, drink offerings were a consistent part of Israel's worship, And while there was significant bloodshed and sacrifice, the drink offerings didn't include blood. They they consisted of wine and strong drink, not blood, which was never to be consumed or used in this way. Therefore, David testified to have no part in their distorted worship to false gods and went on to state that he would not even take their names upon his lips. Not the names of the offenders, but the names of their gods to whom they had bartered and, and pursued, as it were. A matter that it might be appeared that, wow, he's, he's not only pious, he's super pious. And it wasn't an expression of, of protest, as it were, as an act of obedience, all the way back to, again, recognizing and loving Yahweh's law, Exodus 23, 13. It was David choosing obedience in the full expression of these matters as the holy ones, the saints, the obedient ones, those who were submitted in faith and repentance and in lives of obedience were commanded to not even make mention of other gods or to have them heard from their mouth. And then from here, we advance to our next section, verses five to eight. And our third and largest section of the psalm, and one that I think we can uh, reasonably be viewed as, uh, it's, it's four verses. I, I kind of went back and forth. Should it be two sections? But it's really four verses, a unit of two parts consisting of two verses each. But as a unit, they plainly express David's satisfaction and his security. So we've seen the establishment of petition and identity, the relationships that he's engaged with or disassociated with, and now we're seeing what is his satisfaction and security. Well, in verses 5 and 6, we see Yahweh's provisional care framed in the language of inheritance, of sustenance, and land. David recognizes that just as he has no good without the Lord, so he also has no provision or true care without the Lord either. Therefore, he sees the provision of his care and its associated blessings as so bound up in the Lord that the matter is inseparable to him. He states that Yahweh is the portion of his inheritance and his cup. Now, it would appear to me that David was... I'd say intentionally borrowing from the the Levitical tribe's experience, Uh, not to appropriate what is theirs for himself, but to express how preciously privileged they were in their unique position of appearing to lack and yet having everything. So again, he's drawing in the fact that it appeared that, boy, they didn't get what everybody else got, but yet they got more. 
We see just a, one of the many references in Deuteronomy chapter 10, um, because again, what's the nature of appearing to lack, but having everything? Well, as you recall, the tribe of Levi was the only tribe not allowed land by Yahweh. And that was a really big deal, how the land was secured, how it was allotted, how it was preserved through the, the lineage and the tribes. All that was very carefully constructed by the Lord, but the tribe of Levi wasn't given any land. And here we have the promised land, and the people don't even have land. And the prescribed uh, borders have been provided by Yahweh again, but none for Levi. And here, by contrast, you have David's part of the tribe of Judah. A magnificent, large tribe, huge portion of land. And he, extor- and he enjoyed the allotments that were afforded him. However, while land was indispensably valuable and carefully managed, again, through God's laws for his people, Levi lacked nothing by way of provisions as Yahweh himself was stated to be their inheritance. They will not have a tribal allotment. They have the Lord as their portion. So for those whose hearts were fixed in the Lord and found their greatest joy in his presence, this truly was an invaluable position. Not invaluable as to be coveted, but rejoiced in and even borrowed by way of illustrating one's own truest and greatest satisfaction. It's not that David's saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up my land because I want to be like a Levite. No, he's saying, boy, that what they have is what I, what's my heart expresses. The Lord is my portion. So he's expressing that while other provisions are worthy of much thanks, that their greatest satisfaction was in God. And this was a matter we've worked through in our recent studies in Psalm 119, as the psalmist there expresses a light conclusion when he says, Yahweh is my portion, I have promised to keep your words. And again, by David, we see in Psalm 142, I cried out to you, O Yahweh, I said, you are my refuge, my portion, and the land of the living. So once more, David affirmed that Yahweh was the source of his sustenance, his provisions and needs, a matter that he continued to develop in expressing his worshipful gratitude for the kind providence and the allotting of his own tribal lands, a reference that also perhaps was used in a maybe a dual capacity to express not only natural provisions and the blessings, but the preciousness of the Lord, in a sense also being his inheritance, and therefore making his greater inheritance all the more pleasant and beautiful to him. So again, he's giving thanks to Lord, my, my allotment, which you provided me, it's, it's fallen in pleasant places. You've given so generously, even the, the cup, the daily provision and, and all such matters, you've so generously given. And yet, Lord, you're my, my allotment, you're my source, you are my joy. And so he's having this dual expression of thanksgiving for what the Lord's given and the natural physical sustenance and care, but also even beyond that to have given himself. And from here, we now observe that the second half of this larger section, consisting of verses 7 and 8, began with an enthusiastic expression of worship by David as he states that he will bless Yahweh. So again, we have his identity and his petitioning to God. We have the company he keeps. We have the provisions that he's found satisfaction in. And that satisfaction erupts with, I'm going to bless Yahweh. And we think about that term bless, and we often associate the act of blessing as being expressed toward the people of God, that we are a blessed people, or perhaps even uh, blessing one another, but not necessarily us blessing God. However, there's a, a fitting expression of worship that's expressed in blessing God, one of expressing exuberant praise toward him, usually in a context of thanksgiving. So one might bless God for his delivering them, for his provisions toward them, or for some other uh, form of special care he's extended to his people. 
And here, David tells us his reason for blessing Yahweh. He states that the Lord has counseled him. He has given wisdom to negotiate his path well and to skillfully engage the challenges of this life, which may well include struggling with others, if not even himself. And David then went on to state that his mind instructs him in the night, which I would understand to be a natural overflow of this more overt care by the Lord for him. Likely, David was expressing what the psalmist in Psalm 119 so skillfully shared of his own experiences, that the Word of God has so permeated his mind and heart that it had fully consumed his attention in both the day and nighttime hours. David continued on by stating that Yahweh was always before him, that he was at his right hand, expressing that David was ever mindful of the Lord and made his made his centrality, the Lord's centrality, his priority, recognizing the Lord alone was his help, his hope, and joy, a matter wholly consistent with the man who affirmed that it was the Lord who keeps him, who was his refuge, who established his favored company, who generously provided for him, and was his one great desire, and who gave him the skill to negotiate life well. That kind of identification and rooting in the Lord will always keep Yahweh before you, will always keep the Lord before you. And finally here, David stated that Yahweh was at his right hand, the place of favor and honor. He's not belittling the Lord saying, well, Lord, you're over here. No, he's saying the Lord's in an esteemed and elevated and honored position. As he takes such place with David, David will in turn not be shaken. Now, as we get to our last section and building toward our climax of emphasis that Peter obviously will be drawing from and that develops resurrection theology I hope that uh, we're starting to see the, what I proposed at the finish of our engagement of verses 1 and 2. I hope you're tracking that David's petition to be kept by God in whom he had secured refuge and that he had no good without Yahweh has permeated throughout the verses that have followed. So time and again, with his satisfaction in God and, and the praise he has returned to him, we've seen that Yahweh was indeed the source and substance of all David's good. And so also we've seen that the refuge that David had entrusted himself to has continued to prove himself faithful. David's prayer was affirmed over and over again to include this last affirmation of never being shaken, a disposition we also can secure for ourselves, a rock-solid confidence, not simply from training or having a steely resolve, but entrusting ourselves to the immovable rock. So those foundations are developed all throughout, all the way through the present, and now that brings us to our last section here of the psalm. And with this, we come to the, the culmination, as it were, of Yahweh's provisional keeping, his care, and his goodness expressed toward his beloved. A section we titled, Yahweh's Worshipful Provision. Provisions through temporal death and provisions through eternal life. In verses 9 and 10, we read that David writes, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices my flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. Now, as we hear that, I hope something's stirring your mind. I think it's quite natural if you're a good student of the scriptures, and especially of that latter tiny portion that we call the New Testament, because we love that. We're New Testament believers. I hope that as we read that, something's coming to mind. I hope that it can't help but come to mind, namely Acts chapter 2 and, and Acts chapter 13 as the apostles Peter and Paul cited these precious verses to express the glory of Christ's resurrection. 
And I think that's a good place to let our attention rush to. I don't think we're being bad students of the scriptures to say, when I hear that in Psalm 16, my mind rushes over to Acts 2 and 13. Because, again, we're New Testament believers who have a precious vantage point by which we can and should think about these texts, but also because I believe, and I'm increasingly persuaded this way, how that David, however imperfectly and however... um, and by imperfectly, I don't mean in a, a faulty way, but just a lack of full information. I think he would have us have our minds go there. I think that's the very design of this text. Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. And so, David, and so because David was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his body on his throne David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So there are some incidental prophets that say things like, well, that happens to be true, or the Lord used them in some way or fashion or other. I think there was an intentionality of that under the influence of the Spirit of God, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. But while that uh, that's where we will land in a short time. Let's, let's slow down, though. We are in Psalm 16, and let's slow down and walk through these verses as they stand here. So let's, let's hear David in real time, as it were, in Psalm 16, and then we'll take a view to the more full development of it. So in view of what we've just established in the preceding section, we can affirm here that David, um, David was glad, he was rejoicing, and he was secure. That's, the, that's what got us to 9 through 11. He was glad, he was rejoicing, he was secure. He's a man of prayer, a man of confidence in God, a man of joy in God. And his heart was glad, his whole being rejoiced, his flesh dwelled secure in Yahweh, being before him in his right, and at his right hand. Now, we must, all, we must remember here that this was a disposition that has to be framed again in view of the historical context. And as what David expressed here was the, was the clearly and consistently articulated reality for all Israel. All Israel, so insofar as they operated in covenant faithfulness, they, they could express the same kind of things because with their obedience to Yahweh and his law, there was the expectation of enjoying, enjoying the blessings of securely dwelling in their promised land, and there was the expectations of enjoying their Lord. Therefore, dwelling securely, as he states, was both a sure blessing from Yahweh and, as applicable, also a kind expectation associated with their restoration in time to again securely dwell in the land, a matter of anticipation for the days to come. So David and what he's expressing here, that was the the expectation of walking in covenant obedience. Now here, David, who had wholly submitted himself in affection and subordination to the covenant God of Israel, was again, he was experiencing the range of personal benefits of Yahweh's fellowship and safekeeping. That was all that he's saying are fruits of joyful obedience of an Israelite under the Old Testament law and under the the guidance of the Spirit of God for his people, his holy people. There was not for them an untouched element, or for David, there was not an untouched element of of his person that was not experienced the absolutely satisfying joy of Yahweh and the unshakable security that accompanies his presence. That's what he's articulating in here in verses 9 through 11. David knew that struggles and oppositions would find no safe place in their pursuit of him. He was kept by God in whom he had taken refuge. Further, the comprehensive nature of this keeping extended through his final and natural breath. And therefore, because of the happy disposition and security therein, David could state that Yahweh would not abandon his soul to Sheol, as there were no fears of his being forsaken or separated from his Lord. David, like the saints of the land in verse 3, 
had been set apart to the Lord, for the Lord and by the Lord. He was a holy one. And in this, David identified with the Lord both in life and in death. Therefore, Sheol will not have its effects on him. So what is Sheol? We don't commonly talk about that, do we? There's a lot of terms that maybe we don't use. We don't say, hey, have you had any, good, any, read any good victims lately? Like, I don't know. I'm not sure what it is. Um, don't necessarily, again, greet, like, hi, holy one. Um, not hi, holy one, but hi, holy one. We don't, it's, it's not the language we always necessarily use. And so, and so, again, here we have those we might make more use of than Sheol even. And so what is Sheol? Well, Sheol's the place of the dead. It's a bit ambiguous and undefined in its early applications with a clear association with the depths of the earth, both metaphorically and Jacob claiming um, that he will go down to Sheol in grief over his sons. I mean, talk about the weight of the family dynamics there. If, if I lose this other son, my, my gray hairs will go down to Sheol in grief. Like, oh, dad. There was a, that metaphorical going down to the grave, as it were. And then there was the literal application that we saw last week from number 16 as Jude made reference to Korah's rebellion when he and others were swallowed by the earth and went down to Sheol alive. And so you have the metaphorical use of going down and then you have the, the literal reference to going down to Sheol. And then you have other such references. Sheol was a final destination from which man does not return as Job poetically stated in Job chapter 7 verses 9 to 10. A cloud vanishes and it is gone. So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place recognize him anymore. Now, Sheol is used in a, a breadth of ways. So we have the metaphorical going down, we have the literal going down, but it's also used interchangeably for a neutral reference to death, as we saw Job made reference to, and more directly as a punishment of the wicked in death. And so we have a range here. So it can be just a neutral expression of death or even a, an expression of punishment for the wicked in death. And it would appear that in the immediate context of Psalm 16, that the application would have been the more severe reality, namely a punishment outside of covenant fellowship with God. And that this is what David was testifying to having been preserved from as he was a righteous man who wholly trusted Yahweh. And therefore he didn't worry about the punishment that would be associated with the unrighteous in their death. Therefore, while having been preserved from death many times throughout his life, he would ultimately succumb to Sheol in the natural sense. He knew he was going to die. All men do die. But only in that his soul would separate from his body, which itself would enter the grave while he would go on to enjoy the presence of God. Which I know presupposes that the Old Testament had a clear understanding of eternal life, and I do believe it did. I think there's a really good argument for a lot of these things. Now, I hope what we just said about Sheol and David and Psalm 16 makes sense, but I hope it was clear at least. But in case it's not, let me try to restate it a little bit. David knew that death was inevitable, right? He knew he was going to die. Give it time, he was going to die. There would come a time that his natural life would conclude, not because the Lord failed to keep him. So when he prays, Lord, keep me, he is not asking to live in perpetuity. So it's not because the Lord failed to keep him, but because all men die, However, David clearly expressed that Yahweh would not forsake or abandon his soul to Sheol. His soul or his immaterial person that would be separated from his flesh at death would not be left in the place of separation from Yahweh. Rather, even after death, he would go on to enjoy the Lord's presence. So he's not abandoned his soul to Sheol. Now, 
every one of us can easily affirm David's words in verse 10 to this point, right? You can, the, red, the letters in red are not those of Jesus under the inspiration. Maybe we could argue otherwise, but we can all agree with that part, right? It's easy to affirm, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely because you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. So again, that's an easy point of relation. We can affirm that. Everybody who is a believer throughout history could affirm that. Every one of us who have been justified by faith can say that they fully expect to join in the testimony of David to this point, affirming that our soul will not be forsaken or abandoned to Sheol. But not even David could have been speaking of himself in the second half of verse 10. A matter plainly affirmed by Peter, who while preaching in Jerusalem effectively pointed in the direction of David's tomb and affirmed as much. Again, he could have been preaching right there in Jerusalem, being like, you know, David, his tomb's right there, head that way. You can see it. You know it's there. He states, men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Acts 2.29 so how was it that this magnificent psalm that speaks so clearly of Yahweh's keeping, his care, his provision, and deliverance would end on such a flat note? How was it that when all these expressions of worshipful gratitude reach their climax in death, there's not the deliverance that would appear to be purported here? Well, those are two examples of bad questions. I've told you time and again, I've probably offended people that teach in various contexts that say, There's, ask a question. There's no such thing as a bad question. There are bad questions. There's even terrible questions. And those were categorically two terrible questions. So let's rephrase them to make them wonderful statements. Note how this magnificent psalm that speaks so clearly of Yahweh's keeping, care, provision, and deliverance ends on such a magnificent note here, namely on the hope of Christ's resurrection, thereby guaranteeing our own. Again, note how all these expressions of worshipful gratitude reach their climax, not in death, but the last and fullest deliverance of the body from the grave, compelling us with David to confidently rejoice that the Lord will make, us, make known to us the path of life because in his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hand there are pleasures forever. That's the only resolution to the tension here. And it's not only a resolution that I'm persuaded awaits New Testament clarity, but one that David himself saw too. He knew that this that his own body would return to the earth. He understood that he will go the way of his fathers. It was inevitable, but that there would come a greater son whose body would never see corruption in the grave. And it was a sure hope of the keeping and deliverance that would, would and now has come through him that has finally put us on the path of life, even in the face of death. But did David really understand that? Well, as I stated, I'm persuaded that he did. Not to the extent that continued revelation would make clear to him, but I do believe that he understood this and that it provoked him to worship and to a life of confidence that no matter what might come, that the grave was not the end of the story for himself or the saints with whom he found such a joy. And a sample of this confidence, I think, comes in the very next psalm, Psalm 17, where we can read the following conclusion to another prayer of David. He finishes the psalm, Psalm 17, in verses 13 to 15 with, Arise, O Yahweh! Confront him, bring him low. Protect my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand. O Yahweh, from men of the world, whose portion is, the, is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure, 
they're satisfied with children and leave their excess to their infants. So they have a very immediate temporal view to this life. Lord, deliver me. I don't want to be like them. By contrast, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. Sounds very New Testamentish, doesn't it? I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Did you hear that contrast? Those living for this temporal life and David anticipating the beholding of his Lord's face in righteousness and being satisfied with his likeness when he wakes. And I don't think he means the grace that accompanies the next morning. And I'm going to rise up the next morning, I'm going to behold your face. But the grace that Job also expressed that when his body had been laid in the ground, his eyes will in time open again. When his own body has been resurrected and he beholds his God because his Redeemer lives. His Redeemer whose flesh did not see corruption in the grave. And for those of us in Christ, this is our shared hope with Job, with David, with Peter, with Jude, and all others who have submitted in faith and repentance. Because unless the Lord chooses to return soon, I mean, very soon, our loved ones will grieve as we too are put into the grave But at death, we will immediately enjoy the Lord's presence. And when the trumpets blow and the dead in Christ rise, our resurrection bodies will have eyes that will once more open. And with them, we too will behold our God because Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection, never experienced corruption in the grave himself. Just as David prophesied here. So for now... We rejoice with David in the beauty of this psalm and rejoice with Peter as he reminds us at the introduction of his first letter in which he spoke so clearly of temporal suffering yielding to future glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, with a view to the resurrection, he states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But for any who are not in Christ, there's not a lot of consolation for you here. Truthfully, there is none. You cannot pray like David as you've never truly experienced the Lord's keeping or care and have no regard no true regard, at least, for his lordship. You don't find a like joy in the company of the righteous because you found satisfaction in something less than the God of the scriptures. You don't have an appetite for having the Lord as your provision or inheritance as he's plainly not the center of your thoughts or attention. So if you're outside of Christ, I would just encourage you, don't be, don't be so arrogant or, or silly so as to think you can appropriate the joys of the hope he offers beyond the grave. Because believers find joy in every section of this psalm. It is just that we almost forget all these other glorious elements in view of the climatic ending. So as we close, I would gently remind anyone who might find David's petitions, perspectives, and running joy, maybe a bore or disconnected, I'd remind you of something. That tomorrow, April 18th, will be the um, half of a well-worn cliché. What, what's the common, uh, I'm sure Kurt finds great satisfaction in this cliche, the, there's two things that are going to come that are inevitable, they're what? Death and taxes. Well, tomorrow's tax day. And the other half of that cliche, death, it may come sooner, it may come later. None of us know. 
But as Paul stated when preaching to others and having just cited himself the glories of Christ's resurrection as prophesied in Psalm 1610, he states, quote, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So take heed, hear, believe, and repent. And for the saints, the holy ones, in whom David would find such great delight, this glorious truth of Christ's resurrection is why you should remember and rejoice because, quote, the Lord will make known to us the path of life and in his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hand there are pleasures forever. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the testimony that you secured through David. His life was one of 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 just profound struggle and difficulties, and yet um, I think we tend to forget that when we find such satisfaction and how well he responded and how well he struggled, and even in the the gross failures that he experienced, his restoration is is a champion-like story for us. Let us not forget that all those things were expressions of your goodness toward him and in your refining him as a worshiper and, and cultivating that he could pray with a unique measure of confidence, Lord, keep me and know that he would be kept. And we thank you, Lord, that he demonstrated for us that priority of loving your people, loving the righteous and, and finding such joyful satisfaction in what you've given but that he drives us. He doesn't leave us with satisfaction in these things that are, they're sweet expressions of this life and there's value to this temporal life, but he presses us well beyond that to the, to the hope which all men crave that we could say with him that you won't abandon, you won't leave our souls in Sheol, you won't, you won't leave us in a, a state of separation. But even greater than that, if we could say as much that we know that because you didn't let your Holy One experience corruption, because our Lord rose and then, uh, in that was the first fruits of resurrection, we also have a hope of resurrection ourselves, that the Redeemer wasn't just proven to be true, but demonstrated to be true. And so we rejoice, O oh God. We rejoice in Christ's resurrection and the hope that it's provided for us. And we pray Lord, would you teach us to be better worshipers in view of this and to submit ourselves in, in a, a joy-fixed fashion? And, and for those who are outside of Christ, who, who hear these things and they're so familiar, Lord, would you stir them to recognize that um, death is inevitable, resurrection is not, standing before you is inevitable, being, being transformed and fixed and made like you, and, and, and looking forward to the days in which our eyes will open and we will see you in righteousness. That's for those who are in Christ. And so may you be pleased to provoke and call them to yourselves, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.